Somebody's going to go bridge here. It's better time. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Dombridge Podcast, episode 106, presented by Guy Boston Sports. My name is Andrew Gardner, joined alongside by Alex Clausen and Steve Brady. Boys, how we doing? We got a player on the show today. Uh, I'd like to first shout out Jared Carabas uh, for uh, coining the button trick. The button trick was my best and worst friend this weekend. Um, she lives on. She she really is. She's thriving these days. But that's not why we're here. Jared is not on the show. Steve, how are we doing today? I'm doing good. I'm excited. We're interviewing a former player, a current Nesson broadcaster, which should be a really good time. And I don't know if, if we're purposely not saying it yet, but Gardy, if you want to intro him before he actually comes on, or maybe we can just keep it keep it a surprise. I don't know. Welcome, Manny Ramirez, on the show. Let's go. How you doing, Manny? I mean, I, Steve, I, I feel like the the title probably like says enough. Ah, we could. It could be a mystery, though. It's 2004 World Series champ for sure, and then we could just be like, just oh. like that is the title. Yeah, no, we shouldn't do that. Be... Right, we got Lenny DiNardo on the show today. Uh, Lenny, 04 champ with the Sox. He was originally drafted by them. You'll hear everything in the interview in just a minute. But uh, yeah, he currently works for Nesson. Um, great guy, and we're excited to uh, have another 04 uh, champion on the on the show. That's two now. All right, cue, cue the uh, transition music. Should we do it, Steve? Yeah, Should here we, we go. Should we throw it to the interview? Ready? Right now? Wait, when? Now? Now. Welcome to the show, 2004 champ, Lenny DiNardo, Nesson analyst. Lenny, we appreciate you coming on the show. How are we doing today? Thanks for having me, guys. I'm doing real well. Winter's officially here. It was it was taking its sweet time, but we took a little walk prior to getting on with you here today. And it is frigid outside, I tell you what. <laughs> oh yeah. It'll wake you right up. Yes. I assume, I assume you're somewhere in New England. It's yeah, I'm in southern Rhode Island, South Kingstown, Rhode Island, not too far from Narragansett. Um, yeah, we're we're not too far from the water. So as, as far as snow, we don't get uh like Providence and that in northern Rhode Island, it gets pretty blizzardy, but down here we'll get snow, but nothing like up there. Definitely cold, definitely cold. But um, yes. So, so first, kind of first off, wanted to ask you. So you're originally out of you know drafted by the Red Sox, um, but you don't sign with them, and then you know a couple of years later you end up um, with them through the Rule Five draft. Kind of take us through those first couple of years of your career. Yeah. So uh, I was drafted by the Red Sox, like you said, out of high school. I was a tenth rounder, and uh, you know I, I, it was a tough decision because you know 10th rounds you know nothing to shake a stick at but uh, I felt like I could get a little bit stronger not only physically but just emotionally um I could just I know I could be a little bit more well prepared to enter the minor leagues after a couple three years so I, I signed with Stetson University who uh you know folks might know now because De, uh, Jason, uh, DeGrom went there Kluber went there Logan Gilbert in Seattle went there. Some uh, some pretty good pitchers long after I left. So that, that's they kind of put the uh, Stetson on the map. But uh, it was a good university, private school, around 3,000 students. And uh, Pete Dunn, who was the manager at the time, said, basically, uh, we're not going to hand you a starting role. You're not going to we're not going to say you're pitching on Friday night. You got to go out there and earn it. And I always appreciated the opportunity. I did my freshman year and uh, I, I gained velocity through uh you know just getting bigger and stronger and i kind of learned how to pitch 
with the help of a guy named Derek Johnson, who's now uh, the big league pitching coach for the, the Cincinnati Reds. He was at Vanderbilt University, had guys like Jeremy Sowers, David Price after leaving Stetson. So, you know, it, it worked out, but it was a gamble. You never know when you're going to be done. If you're, you're one pitch away from never throwing a baseball again. So saying in three years, let's revisit the draft uh, was an absolute gamble, but it worked out because uh, I was drafted in the third round by the Mets in 2001 and uh, played three years in the minor leagues with them. And like you said, I was, I was picked up by the Red Sox uh, in the rule five draft. Uh, and I was the last pitcher to make the team via the rule five uh, before Garrett Whitlock. So oh, there was wow. a 17 year gap between a pitcher actually making the club and, uh, mm-hmm. So uh, Garrett, and I, I told him this when I first met him, I said, listen, your stuff is way better than mine ever was. So go out there and do your thing. But uh, it's uh, it just shows how difficult it is to go actually and make a big league club after pitching uh, in A-ball and, and just a, a cup of coffee in double-A prior to that season. So it was, it was a daunting experience, to say the least. Yeah, so uh, you want to go, Clausen? Go ahead. Uh, in 2004, obviously, like you're on the Red Sox roster for the entire season, given it was from the Rule 5 draft. We actually had an opportunity to sit down with Bronson Arroyo a couple months back in a similar fashion as this. And he gave us some really interesting insight into what that clubhouse looked like. So I just was wondering from your point of view, your perspective, what it was like uh, sharing a clubhouse with Pedro and Manny and uh, Poppy and all them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bronson's my boy. He was first, I got to say that when I came up in 04, I was 24 years old. And like I said, I pitched in single A and double A the year prior. And Bronson was probably the main guy. There's a few guys. but Bronson was the main guy that kind of took me under his wing. He had a a little bit of time in the big leagues prior to that. And uh, he kind of showed me the ropes and, and and tried to steer me in the right direction and, and kind of, you know, keep me, you know, reeled in a little bit because you can get excited 24 year old kid 24 year old kid in boston just like a kid in a candy store so he uh i always appreciated what he did and we're still tight to this day the clubhouse was was amazing and 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 when you talk about a team when you're putting together a team if you're a gm you're always you know you're looking at numbers you're looking at need what what positions do we really need to focus on but you're also looking at personalities good clubhouse guys because it only takes one bad clubhouse guide despite the numbers to go out there and sink the ship. And, uh, and that team was very, very talented, but they were a bunch of grinders. They were a bunch of guys that had a lot of fun and they were a bunch of guys that, uh, and again, it's, it's obvious it's cliche, but when it's, it was, when, when it was all on the line and, and extremely needed at that moment, this is the team that had a slow heartbeat. And, uh, and a lot of it has to do with not only what they did on the field numbers wise, but personality wise, everybody got along. Everybody was uh, great at communication and a uh, bunch of uh, dirt dogs, grinders, guys that uh, that got hot at the right time. I'm not going to say they they weren't the most talented team, but it doesn't matter at that point. If you get to the playoffs, if you get hot at the right time, that's the team that typically wins the World Series. And, you know, every year there's a there's an example. Look at the Dodgers. Look at the Padres. These are extremely the Mets this past year, extremely talented teams, but a team like the Phillies got to the World Series, were they the most talented? Debatable. Probably not, but they got hot at the right time. And it's kind of similar to the Red Sox, a bunch of hard-nosed blue-collar guys that uh, played the game hard and, and did it right. 
No, it is kind of interesting you because Bronson had the same insight. You know, it's a, this animal house in the locker room. Everything's going on. It's, it's a circus. And then you step on the dirt on the field and everyone's got their hands in the dirt. Everyone's working. Was it one of those you guys stepped out of the clubhouse and that switch flipped for everyone and everyone was on the same page? Or was oh, it, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Was it Millar in spring training that, that said something to the effect of, you know, this is the team that we knew pretty early on. And for me to be a rookie, I kind of just uh, did my best to keep my eyes and ears open, my mouth shut at certain points, because you don't want to be that 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 guy that rocks the ship because he's just happy to be there and be the loud guy in the clubhouse as a rookie. So I'm taking it all in. I was an absolute sponge. And uh, when they handed me the ball, I tried to do the best I could. And uh, I think I had 22 appearances maybe out of the bullpen, mostly mop up my job. And I kind of learned this on the way. My job was basically when the starting pitcher got – lit up early or start walking guys early. I had to go in there, fill innings. And, and uh, Mike Timlin is another guy that took me under his wing and taught me a lot, but he was the guy that basically told me in real time in the middle of a game, one of the pitchers, I can't remember who the starter was, was having a rough time in the first or second inning, walking guys, getting hit around. And I'm just sitting there having fun on the, in the bullpen, like, you know, just looking around, happy to be there. And Timlin looks at me and says, dude, you better get ready. You know, you're the guy, right? Like, Oh, okay. So by the time the phone rings, if I'm not already stretching my arm out and ready to go, it's too late at that point. I had to kind of figure that out uh, with the help of those veterans like that. But yeah, I mean, just uh, we knew we had something special. We knew the talent was there, but, and again, when you have a good clubhouse, you have guys that get along guys that joke around guys that go to dinner every night after the game, guys that, and go to the bar every night after the game. There's that 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 feeling on the field where everything clicks, right? Everything just kind of uh, you know flows. When you got a team that doesn't nurse, doesn't necessarily like to hang out off the field, there's a disconnect there, right? You just don't have the same chemistry on the field because of the clubhouse lack of chemistry. If that makes sense. And I wanted to ask too, um, you know, like on the field as, as a team, you guys were super close, but. Um, you had, well, now he's considered one of the best managers in the game, probably a future hall of famer. He just won AL manager of the year, Terry Francona. And that was his, his first year with the team. So, uh, you know, kind of, what was it like playing under him? Uh, I mean, what you see is what you get, right? That, that personality that you see after the, after the games kind of joking with the media, uh, you, you guys have heard it before, but he, he's got that open door policy. Literally his door was always open because someone was in there you know, playing cards or cribbage or something with him. You could always just kind of walk by and, and have a chat anytime. But, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, an old school manager, players manager, great communicator, very similar to a guy like Alex Cora. And I feel like Alex learned a lot from Tito. Um, and he would walk around the clubhouse every day, just kind of getting to know how everybody feels. He wouldn't necessarily say, hey, how you feeling today? But just by talking to you, hey, what's going on? He would kind of get get the, uh, the idea of, who should be in there and who shouldn't be in there just by that, that, that communication and uh, couldn't be happier for him. He's been doing it for a long time, not only as a player, but as a, you know, in, in, in different capacities on the bench as a coach. Um, and then finally in 04, being able to get the chance as a manager and, and making the most of the opportunity. So uh, again, doing it for a long time, very, very happy for him. He's my first big league manager and, and, and uh, my favorite by far, by, by all means. Yeah, and then I a uh, little bit of a of a pivot here because I don't want to get too far away from it. But you mentioned you were super close with Bronson. 
uh, right when you got in. And during our interview with Bronson, we found out how much he kind of has a relationship with Pearl Jam. And then right before we started this recording, you showed us your picture with Eddie Vedder and I noticed the guitar behind you. So I assume that was like a thing that you guys probably bonded over. And I was just wondering, like, because you didn't mention it too much before. How did you kind of establish that initial relationship with Bronson? Well, I, I could see right away that he was kind of younger. I think he's what two, three years older than me. And uh, that was an older club. It was a lot of guys pushing 35, 40 at the time. And uh, me being mid 20s, him being later 20s, we kind of gravitated towards each other. And we, we found out pretty quickly that we both started playing guitar not too long ago. And we would always take the guitar on the road and jam. And uh, yeah, Eddie Vedder, let me see if you guys can see it. That's, that's me and Eddie there back in, I don't know, 2014 or something. I took that. That was in Chicago at the Metro. Uh, back then, Bronson called me. I was living in Florida at the time. And he says, hey, what are you doing uh, tomorrow? And I said, well, I don't know. What are you doing? And he said, I'm getting a private jet. We're flying to Chicago. We're going to go see Eddie play the Metro. And uh, I basically said to my wife, I was like, hey, you mind if I go to Chicago for one night? <laughs> go for it. And uh, we flew out, saw the show. And at three in the morning, we went right back to the airport and flew all the way back down to Florida. And uh, I've had a chance to play with Eddie at uh, the Hot Stove Cool Music event that, that Peter Gammons and Theo Epstein put on every year. Um, great guy, very generous with his time uh, toward charities and whatnot, and uh, very talented. You know, I, I bought 10 Pearl Jam's 10 when I was like 11, 12 years old. I've been a fan ever since. So it's, uh, it's kind of like rock and roll fantasy camp for me. Um, but yeah, Bronson and I, we, we played guitar together not too long ago at, at Red Sox fantasy camp. He probably played 15 songs for the guys down there. And I jumped up for a couple, one Pearl Jam. I think another was a Tom Petty tune. Um, but yeah, we, we had a lot in common back then age, love music, uh, kind of crafty, crafty pitchers didn't necessarily throw really hard. We had to go out and get guys out in different ways with movement, changing speeds, adding on, taking off velocity with our fastball. So, uh, just, just a great guy, and uh, we, we clicked back then. And like I said, we're still really good friends to this day. Yeah, Other that's guy. like um, that's something that I think is a microcosm for that entire clubhouse. You could tell people actually liked each other because there's also these teams that are you know super talented, and you can tell that they just don't like being around each other. And a lot of times, those teams aren't as successful as teams like though for Red Sox. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. The the camaraderie in the clubhouse, just the the kinship, the that family feeling that you get when you when you're in a clubhouse with the team that you want to go out and get dinner with, you want to go share a beer with at the bar after a game. Uh, when you're on the field, it's just, I mean, it, it goes. I, I can't understate how far it goes on the field as far as the play and guys like uh, Alan Embry, uh, Keith Falk. I mentioned Mike Timlin, Bronson. Uh, a lot of those guys go down the road, uh, and I mentioned Sox Fantasy Camp every year. A lot of those guys go down there, and you know it's like a family reunion. And for two, three weeks in January, we're always we're always looking forward to to seeing them. And it's been, geez, eighteen years, I guess, since two thousand four. And uh, every year, I've been doing it for seven years, I guess. I always look forward to seeing those guys because, again, they're like family. There's always there's no handshakes. It's always hugs when we first see each other. So in your time, <clears throat> excuse me. In your time in the majors, as well as just being a fan after and as well, you know, being an analyst at Nesson, you've been around baseball for a long time. Has there been a team that's even been close in your eyes to that camaraderie, to that, I guess, brotherhood, you could say, that that 04 had? Teams that I've been on? No, no. 
No, it's uh, and I went to the A's. I went to the Royals after the Red Sox. I played the minor leagues with the Mets prior to every, everything. But, uh, yeah, that team, it was special. It really was special as far as everybody getting along and, and being able to kind of joke with each other and uh, and communicate. Um, I've had teams where guys got along great, but there's that 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 thing that you really can't put your finger on that that 04 team had that was very, very special. And uh, it's, you know, it, it, there's a reason why they went so far, you know, and it's not something you can really uh, just put together very easily, I should say. Right. Yeah, the only team I could think of that might have been even close was 2013 in Boston. You were probably yeah. around it much closer than I was, but I didn't know if that was a similar pair. I mean, 04 is in its its own category of its own in terms of all-around baseball teams, but the the connection those guys had on 2013, just as a fan sitting at home, seemed like yeah. those guys really cared about each other and cared about You're playing right. each other. Yeah, I get the same feeling. You know, I wasn't around that club. I was still I was playing independent ball that year, so I kind of saw them from afar. Was watching them in my peripheral, but you know, with with, with the tragedy that happened at the marath- with the marathon bombing, that's that's something that unfortunately happened. But it probably brought the team together a little bit. This is something brought the city together, and the Red Sox were, were very visual at the time, so it was probably a microcosm of what the city itself was doing. Everybody kind of had to band together and and kind of take back the city and take back uh, uh, what they needed to do to win the win the World Series that year. So again, yeah. It looked like uh, the camaraderie in the in the thirteen team with the beards and everything as well. Everybody was kind of a, uh, a goofball that that was uh, kind of on the same similar path. Kind of uh, moving away from the Red Sox for a minute. I'm curious. You go on to play for Oakland. You go on to play for Kansas City. Um, I mean, two kind of very different teams from the Red Sox in terms of of market size. Um, you know, how is it just kind of different playing for those teams compared to playing for a team in Boston? Yeah. So li- listen, I appreciated my time in Oakland because when I was at the Red Sox, like I said, I was kind of mop up. I started maybe six games kind of, uh, I took the place. So I think five starts from David Wells when he got hit by a line drive in the knee. So I got the ball, uh, from that. But when I went to Oakland, they said, here's the baseball, go out there and do your thing. So in 2007, um, I was in Fort Myers with the Red Sox for about a week prior to spring training, kind of getting there early, getting ready to go. And I showed up to my hotel room one afternoon after uh, a workout, and it was a two voicemails. One was my agent, one was the Oakland A's, basically saying, you're on the next flight out, you're now with the A's. Just like that, I had to kind of get my, my ducks in a row and get out there. And when I got there, it, w- it was different. It was different because uh, the opportunity uh, – was was just a little bit more in favor for a guy like me. So I made 20 starts that year, 15 relief appearances. I think two of those relief appearances were six plus innings, kind of just just going out there. So I appreciated the opportunity. I appreciated them handing me the baseball and letting me run with it that year. Um, when maybe the opportunity uh, with a team like the Red Sox probably wasn't going to quite be as, uh, as as great as great as pitching for the Red Sox was. You know, I liked going out there and taking the ball as often as possible. So. Uh, Love pitching for the Sox. I also love pitching for the A's for that reason. Yeah. And then like you, like Gardy said, uh, you know, you're not only going to the A's, it's different market size. It's a different team culture. It's also um, just a West Coast team. So everything's different there. And then I see right here uh, in 2007, you got your first hit uh, and your only hit of your career against Matt Cain. I just was wondering if that's like a sweet moment that you like, like to look back on a little bit of a, of uh, highlighting your career? 
Absolutely. Let me let me grab something real quick. I've I've got it around here. I've got so much junk in this room. And I don't think any of that stuff is junk. I'll tell you that. <laughs> let me see. So yeah, the hit. I got the baseball somewhere over there, but this is the actual bat <laughs> I got my hit with. Uh-huh. They actually gave me a bat with my name on it. And uh there's too many, too many scuff marks down here, unfortunately. But <laughs> I don't know where my hit was. It was somewhere over. Well, it probably was over. It was a Matt Cain fastball up and away. I think it was it was hard fastball. And it was a check swing. And uh, it didn't even take a full hack. But I, I met the barrel. I hit it out, blooped it in the left field. Omar Vizquel was in shortstop. Barry Bonds was in left. And I kind of got it right in between the both of them. Uh, so it was one for five. Matt Cain was my hit. He struck me out. Uh, Tom Glavin in New York when he was at the Mets uh, grounded me out, struck me out, and Corey Lytle, rest in peace, uh, struck me out as well. So a lot of Ks there, but I'll take that one hit. It's one of my proudest moments at the big league level. And Matt Cain's a great guy to get a hit off of. I mean, he's oh, a, yeah. a great career. Yeah, he did. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think it just shut my eyes and swung the bat as hard as possible <laughs> and uh, got lucky, I guess. That's awesome. Um, so I got a, a two-pronged question. <clears throat> Sticking with your time in the A's, what was it like playing at the Oakland Coliseum? Is it as bad as people say? Listen, I love pitching in the Coliseum because really? where there's stri- yeah, because there's strikes at Fenway, they're outs in the Coliseum. The foul ground, it's, it's so vast. Guys can just camp when it's eight rows deep at any other ballpark, especially Fenway, where there's no foul ground. Right. Um, the Oakland Coliseum. Yeah, it's it's not the greatest stadium, but if you look past that, there's certain things on the field. You can get two or three outs a game where there would be strikes in other stadiums. And I love the fans in Oakland. They were the, the same faces day in and day out. You got to know them on a on a on a, a, a name by name basis. You see the same faces. So, you know, hey Chuck, you know, good to see you again today while we're sitting in the bullpen or whatever. It was it was great. It was great. I think they honestly the fans in Oakland deserve a lot better. I hope the I don't see it really happening, but I'd like to see them do something to keep them there. But, yeah, I don't know if it's going to happen. We can hope. Um, and then yeah. just apples to apples, being on the East Coast, being on the West Coast, what did you prefer in terms of, you know, the guys you're playing against, the stadiums you're in, the the atmosphere, the the fans, the everything like that? Yeah, nothing's ever going to be Fenway Park as far as the atmosphere and the fans. You know, you're you're – you know, you're playing the Baltimore Orioles back in 04 when you're playing the Baltimore Orioles on a Wednesday, you're still getting 36,000 people. The stadium's hopping. People are, are, you know, having a great time. They're cheering for you. They're yelling at the other club. It's not like that anywhere else, you know, and in Oakland, I don't know, the place probably holds 80,000. If you get 15, it looks like five just because there's so much empty space. Um, and, 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 when I was with the Red Sox, I could throw one inning mop up and I leave the stadium and people would say, Hey, Donato, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> with that accent, and and unfortunately in Oakland, you know, you just that, you know, you, you go out there and throw eight shutout, you can leave the stadium, people don't really recognize you like they do in the Northeast. Unfortunately, it's just that it comes with the territory. Uh, I like pitching in both places, but it's night and day as far as the fan experience and just the atmosphere and and that that playoff atmosphere day in and day out. Kind of now with your your you know post playing career working for Nesson, uh, you know, doing TV for them. How did that opportunity present itself with Nesson? What, like, it was TV something you always wanted to do? And kind of how did you get back to the Red Sox and say, you know, not work for the for the A's, you know, TV broadcast? Yeah, 
well, first the A's never called me. <laughs> um, so there's really no competition as far as networks uh, having a tug, tug of war with my arms. That, that, that just didn't happen. But there's a, a club called the Bow Sox Club. It's been around for a long, long time. And I've, uh, I just emceed an event for them a couple weeks ago. But back in 2017, uh, they asked me to be a, a special guest. They usually get an alumni and then a current player, sometimes a front office guy to come. And they interview him for five minutes and, 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 and have a little talk. And after my interview was up and the meeting ended, the MC at the time was Tom Karen. And he came up to me kind of quietly says, have you ever thought about going on TV? And the thought never entered my head before that. And he said, well, you know, maybe consider it. And. I told him, uh, yeah, I, I'd try it. And they called me up and, and brought me into the Nesson Studios, had me do like a little test run in the studio. They they had some footage play. And they just had me kind of ramble and talk over it. The play was Dustin Pedroia in Texas. Uh, Moreland, I want to say, was at first. It was a, The ball hit bat, past both of them. And Pedroia kind of dove around and threw it, spun around, threw it to Moreland. Pretty good play back then. And I think it happened a week or so prior. Um, and it's had to kind of talk and play through in real time. And uh, the rest is history. They said, hey, you're in. Can you start this date? And the date that I started, my first day at Nesson was the day that Rafael Devers got called up. So that's the gauge that I always use as far as when I started. I had to kind of look at his career and see how long he's been in the league and uh, kind of gauge it that way. Hope my career is as good as his so far. <laughs> I mean, I know we've all been enjoying it. You must be, you know, obviously you're really close uh, ties with the team. And we definitely want to get your take on the off season and then into next season. But I also want your thoughts on this past season, what you thought about it. And then I'm curious on if you have a favorite current player right now. Yeah, yeah. So last season was, I mean, at times hard to watch. And at other times it was like, okay, we can, we can write this ship. Uh, I want to say June, they were 20 and six. That's the... That's kind of what you wanted to see from this club. and But it was Jekyll and Hyde throughout the most of the season. It was really good or really bad. There really was no kind of middle ground. Mostly, I don't want to even say partially, but most mostly because, in my opinion, the injuries. They, they got that injury bug. A lot of these players that were really good the prior year and really kind of propelled them into the playoffs, guys like Kike Hernandez, uh, he, you know, you didn't have him at the top of the lineup. You didn't have that power bat, the guy getting on base to set up the, set the table. Um, Trevor story signed over and he got hit by the injury bug too. Just couldn't get consistent because of it. Um, so yeah, uh, just inconsistencies, I think a has a lot to do with the fact that there was injuries, but, uh, I think they have to adjust the bullpen. I think you got to have an anchor at the backside and someone to bridge that gap from the starters. Um, overall the starting guys, you know, again, more injuries, Evaldi. Chris Sale coming back and then going right back on the IL because of just freak stuff, right? Little things like that. Uh, that was probably the writing on the wall for me and a lot of people when when his finger broke with that line drive. Like, oh, oh yeah, that's it. That's it. So, again, um, I would love to see them signed, sign uh, Xander because I think he's everybody's favorite Red Sox right now. And if he were to leave, it, it would leave a sour taste in a lot of fans' mouths. Uh, you're just not going to get a better shortstop. He had a great year at the at the plate. Maybe not the power numbers that you would like, but his average is up all year. His defense was was exemplary. Great. Yeah, and again, we talk about clubhouse and how important it is. He's the shining example of what you should be in the clubhouse as far as keeping guys together, being the glue, and holding yourself accountable not only to 
uh, the media, but the fans as well. When the, when they're doing great or when they're terrible, he's the face that kind of uh, the media gravitates towards, and you can see it on his face that he really cares. You know, if they're if they're losing, if they're not playing good baseball, you can read it like a book on his face. Sometimes it almost looks like, looks like he's tearing up up there because he really cares. That's what you want to see as a fan and and a and a, a lover of baseball. You know, someone that's out there kind of laying it on the line day in and day out. That's what he does. So. Again, I hope they sign him. It's it's probably going to be a lot easier to sign a guy like Devers if you do because they're like yeah. brothers out there in the clubhouse and on the field. Um, but again, you got to shore up the bullpen. Hopefully you get Xander. You know, the starting rotation, that's going to work its way out. There's going to be guys in there that can fill in. I don't, I'm not sure if Pavetta is going to stay in the rotation or if they're going to move him to the bullpen. I always saw him kind of as a closer. Who knows? Because he's got that energy, that one inning energy where he could probably ramp it up and get a couple extra miles per hour uh, and be successful in that role. But uh, Evaldi wasn't healthy for a majority of the year. I mean, for a stint last year with the the uh, hip Whitlock, who was outstanding the year before hip. Uh, the the Toronto debacle where certain guys couldn't go there like Hauk, And then you got to move other guys in the rotation, out of the rotation. It just it's, it was a very inconsistent season, and I think the the good news is there's a lot of pieces there. There's a lot of pieces out there that can fill these roles. Hopefully, they go out there and shore up some deficiencies. I think they will, and uh, kind of get back on on the horse, so to speak. Yeah, something we talked about in our last it was the last episode of the episode before we talked about how this is kind of the way we see it is this is Heim Bloom's make or break off season. You know, he came in to kind of a, a tough situation, had to get rid of Mookie. Right after that, you run into COVID, puts together a great team in 2021. It's the injury bug in 2022, which, again, as you said, was kind of a, a part of it, along with this, you know, big uh, inefficiency out of the pitching staff, you know, just couldn't get consistent all season. Do you really see it from an analyst perspective? Because we know Cora can coach. We know we have talent on the field. Do you see this kind of as in the same way that this is Bloom's chance to, to make or break his impact as, as GM for baseball. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the optics. Yeah, yeah, the optics certainly point into that direction. But I will say that the the general manager position, especially in Boston, really is a thankless job. If you think about this, everybody says, oh, he's not spending money. He doesn't want to spend the money. But if you look at the guy before him, his predecessor, Dave Dombrowski, what was everybody screaming when he was there? You're depleting our minor leagues. You're spending all this money. You're (laughs) spending too much money. Like it was coming out of their wallets, you know? So, uh, yeah, there can be some middle ground there. And uh, Dombrowski was not afraid to go out and get players and spend money to go out there and win a championship. Now, you got to look at what what Heim's been doing as far as shoring up the minor leagues, right? We've got a great minor league system. A lot of young players are that are going to be the future of the Red Sox. So, Yes, when you do that, you're not necessarily going to win a championship that year, but it's putting the pieces in place to to maybe have some of those players in the minors contribute at the big league level in the near future or maybe to use them as trade pieces to get a guy in the big leagues right away from a different organization. So, yeah, um, this is definitely the year, I think, where he's got to go out there and do something because, um, yeah, he was – put into a role where, you know, it wasn't going to be easy from the start. Mookie wasn't going to stay here. He didn't want to stay here. COVID, that was a nightmare for everybody. Uh, but, yeah, I think he's going to go out there and, and have to have a happy medium as far as spending. He's going to have to spend a little money and try to, to, to keep some of these minor league players if he's going to keep the fans happy. Because, like I said, it's it's a thankless position. You're going to have one 
part of the population, Red Sox nation, say you're not spending enough. Other guys are going to say you're, you're you're spending too much. It, the difficult part is putting together a championship while kind of keeping both. Yeah, I guess I I mean the free agent class this year is better than than most. I mean you have Jacob Degrom and, and Aaron Judge in, in free agency right now. Uh, not that you're going to sign either of them, but Heim Bloom's got as many chances as anyone, and, sure. and the fans are impatient. If he does, if he sits on his hands and you know signs Garrett Richards again, then I think people are going to be coming for his head. Yeah, yeah, and and, it, and and when when he signed Garrett Richards, it looked like a good sign. This is a guy that had good stuff. He just did not pan out, right? Yeah, nothing, you see it nothing on his face. Garrett Richards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's. I mean, there's certain parts at the beginning of that year where you're like, man, this guy's lost on the mound. Then he started to find it again, and then it was just, again, inconsistent. Uh, Michael Waka was a sign similar oh, yeah. to that. Like, okay, this is a guy that's been around for a little little bit. Look what, look at that signing. I thought he did outstanding. I, I think, you know, he would be a great guy to keep in the rotation this year. So, again, you're looking at the player. You're looking at the stats. You're looking at the what-if scenario. If this pans out, what could he be? Didn't really pan out for a guy like Richards, Waka, great sign, you know. So again, you you sign a guy with the pedigree, you sign a guy on what uh, on, on what he could do, what he should do, and sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. And it's, it's not always on the GM to go out there and and uh, and, and and he's he has to be accountable, but it's not really up to them to throw the baseball. You know, you're kind of talking about like the young talent on this, or uh, like at least in the minor leagues right now. Um, I think we're starting to see for the first time really in, in almost a decade, some really, really good starting pitching prospects headlined by Brian Bayo. So I want to ask um, kind of two prong question as well. What have you kind of seen from Bayo as a, as a former pitcher yourself? And it, it, in terms of the free Asian market, who should the Red Sox kind of be going after this year? Um, you know, Bayo was really thrust into this limelight's limelight in a way that I haven't seen since probably Clay Buchholz, you know, to the anticipation. I mean, his start was just the buzz and electricity around the clubhouse and the, and Fenway park, the stadium at the time was, was something that, that was rarely, it's rarely seen. So he came out with electric stuff. I feel like he was over amped for the first few starts uh, was able to go out there and pitch the minor leagues this way and still get outs and be effective and, and have some success. But at the big league level, you got to go out there and pitch. You can't get away with just going out to throwing heat. Oh, and he was overthrowing. You know, he wasn't spotting up his fastball or his secondary pitches because I think he was amped up and just trying to get guys out uh, by saying, you know, I'm going to throw this ball past you rather than maybe I'll take a little off, make the ball move a little bit, hit my spots, get ahead. When a pitcher gets ahead in the count, there's so many different ways he can go out there and get batters out. Uh, and when you don't get ahead, the hitters are in the driver's seat. That's what I kind of saw from him. But what I loved, other than the stuff, was the fact that he was kind of learning on the job at the big league level how to make these adjustments. So with the help of of the pitching coach and, and other people in the clubhouse as well, uh, and other players, other guys on the staff. You can see them in the dugout talking about different pitches on days where he wasn't starting. You can see these guys helping the kid along. So uh, it was fun to watch him kind of figure his way out and kind of get out of the jungle, so to speak, because uh, it, it, it's hard. Making that transition from the minor leagues to the big leagues it can be uh, an experience. And I thought he did a heck of a job. I think he's going to have a long career staying healthy, hopefully, and uh, 
and continuing to progress and, and kind of know how to get big league hitters out because his stuff's outstanding with the movement, the three different pitches, 97, 98 with the fastball. Very, very fun to watch. I think he's going to keep getting better and better. Um, as far as free agents, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. You want to go out there and, and get somebody that can give you five, six innings. That's the goal. If you can get some consistency, five, six innings these days, my goal when I watch a Red Sox game is I don't want to see five, six pitchers in a game. Anytime there's five, six pitchers, it's A, it's taking too long. B, you're only as strong as your weakest link. You have five guys on the mound. One of those guys is probably not going to have a great day, right? And that happens all the time. So you have three, four pitchers max. I feel like you're more than likely going to have a decent day. If the starter goes five or six, you have one or two guys filling the gap before you hit the closer. And then you're good to go. So I don't really have any names right now because that's, you know, I don't want to say it's irresponsible, but <laughs> there's just so many. Uh, don't necessarily have to go out there and, and get the DeGrom, but get the guy that can go out there and give you a, a clean five or six innings. Um, a guy like Walk is a prime example. You know, I loved a couple years ago. I don't know if he's a free agent. I don't think he is. Charlie Morton. That's another guy that oh, yeah. I would have loved to seen him in a Red Sox uniform because he's a guy that knows how to pitch. He's a consistent presence on the mound. He'll get you deep into games. Um, so somebody like that, you know, uh, someone that, 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 that's not necessarily going to command the money that DeGrom will get, but someone that can go out there and give you consistency. Those are the guys that I think they should look at. Yeah. So this has been like, obviously you're, you are a pitcher. This has been a pitching heavy episode, which I love. And the game has definitely changed. I think since, uh, you were, uh, actively making starts or appearances, Sure. What are your thoughts on all of the rule changes, the potential rule changes, and then specifically the idea of an automatic robot strike zone? Yeah, the rules, um, I'm totally fine with them banning the shift. Um, it was just weird for me to see a line drive right to second base and it being an out or, and then a trickle of a ground ball to third base and have that be a hit. It was just very strange to me. I feel like banning the shift is going to, highlight the athleticism of the shortstops in second base because now they're going to have to go out there and make some rangy plays hmm. when uh, when they're playing on certain sides of the infield. It's either nowhere close to them and they're just not going to be able to get to it at all or it's right at them. So you're going to have to see more athleticism in, in the middle infield, which you know I, I can appreciate. And uh, as far as the, the strike zone, the robot umpires, I don't think we should ever have a robot umpire, so to speak, but I do feel like umpires should have the same information that you and I have watching a baseball game. If you're sitting at home, you can see that the ball is a strike, right? You look at the K zone, you know, it's a strike. The only person that doesn't have that information is the umpire, the guy that that's making the call. So I'm okay with uh, something in their, their ear, some sort of ear piercing ear saying that was a strike. And then the umpire kind of make the call. I don't think it was, I'm going to call it a ball. That's up to them. Because they're going to get scrutinized on social media. Their percentages are out there after every game. What percentage were correct and and, and all of that. So I'm okay with, with a robot telling them, giving them the information, whether it was a ball or a strike. Um, the bases uh, being larger, 18 inches rather than 15, it's going to make the difference between each bag four and a half inches less, which is going to, Four and a half inches is a lifetime in baseball. So you're probably going to see a lot more stolen bases, stolen base attempts. Uh, another uh, 
contributing factor is the fact that pitchers are only going to be allowed to pick over twice. If they pick over a third time and the runner isn't out on the bases, he gets to go to second base. That I'm not on board with because that's just going to – it's going to be a strange factor that's going to determine the outcomes of games. To me, more than the others, because, you know, if, if I pick over twice and I – the, the 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 runner is going to say he's not going to pick over again, right? He's going to probably get a, a a little bit longer lead. He's still going to know he's going to be able to get back, but it's just strange to not have the availability to really go over and pick over a third time because it's a very small percentage chance you're going to pick some off anyway. The idea is to keep them a little closer to the bag. I'm not picking over every time just to pick him off. I'm keeping him. I'm keeping myself in his thoughts that I need a little hesitation for him to take off. I want to give my catcher. Uh, a little bit more time to throw them out. So that's going to change the game negatively, I think. Um, and, and I don't know, the average time taking off the game in the minor leagues this past season was 26 minutes, which that's good. That's good. But we don't want to do that to the detriment of the game. You know, yeah, 26 minutes is a good amount of time, but you want baseball to stay baseball. And, and some of the rules like that are just kind of bonkers, in my opinion. Absolutely. Those are a lot of great insights. I think when... A, a fan is looking at these potential rule changes. They don't necessarily realize how impactful on the game it might be, especially uh, probably with the size of the bases. People think, you know, they're increasing it by a very minimal amount. But in reality, you're right. It's, it's a lifetime in baseball. And then I just have one other uh, rule change. I think I saw it in a, uh, in a minor league game. The, the batter had the ability to challenge a pitch in the, uh, the middle of their bat step out of the box top the top of their head something like that and then they go they go to the review and he's either right or wrong and i was wondering what you thought of that yeah i mean that's uh that's that's one thing that if they gave the umpires the information if it was a ball or a strike then we wouldn't have to have that rule right mm -hmm. you know we know it was a strike the computer told me it was a strike so again if the umpire had that information we wouldn't even be talking about that new rule change, right? So, again, you could just kind of kill two birds with one stone by doing that. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's something else that's going to prolong the game. So you're trying to shorten the game, but you're also adding, you know, hey, check it again. Uh, the, the, the whole talk to New York thing, that adds menace to the game. Oh, yeah. It takes away a lot of the human element. And, you know, the, the big play was the, the – perfect game at detroit that's the only time where i'm like man they mm -hmm. should give that guy they, should, they didn't have replay back, back then but that's they should go back and give that guy the perfect game yeah uh but there's this there's so many different changes trying to speed up the game but then you have little things like that that are just going to keep slowing it down a little bit too so i don't know if it makes it more interesting or not to me probably not that much you know whether it was a ball or strike having the hitter um kind of challenge that is is needless i think in my opinion so i got a couple final questions right before we wrap up so my first one looking at into 2023 in that season what's something you're most looking forward to out of the red sox oh some consistency i don't want to see i don't want to see a 20 and 6 and then a 6 and 20 uh month to month you know that's uh i don't necessarily have to see 20 and 6 but if you win 15 to 18 games a month, you're going to be in the driver's seat. You're going to be good. I think the talent is there. So, again, uh, the consistency, but also staying healthy on the field. I don't want to see a lot of these freak injuries uh, sideline a lot of these players that need to contribute, need to go out there and help this club win ballgames. So, again, 
stay healthy, stay consistent. I'm going to see five guys start every five days for the rem- for the full season. That would be outstanding. That's a winning formula to me. I think yes. you don't you don't have injuries this year. I think you're you're pushing the playoffs at least. Easier said than done, fellas. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you're going to have little things here and there, but it was just insane last year. The amount of crazy injuries that happened sidelines some key players that helped the year before. It was nuts. Um, and then in the booth, I got a pair of questions for you. So, uh, you know, you have the main guys in the booth. You got Tim Wakefield, Jim Rice. Those guys are always there after every post game, everything like that. But you've had some some mix around with the, you know, the sideline characters. So, you know, Will Middlebrook stepped in this year. Um, you had Jonathan Papelbon in there last year. He's one of the one of the bigger characters in Red Sox history. What was it like working with him? What was it like with him in the booth? Because I, yeah, I imagine so, he's completely different than he was in the clubhouse. No, really, he's completely <laughs> the same person. Yeah, yeah. You never know what you're going to get with Pat, which is a good thing for TV, if you know right. what I mean. He's uh, he's a fun guy, and like I said, what you saw. Uh, on the Zooms, because he was a guy, him and Mo Vaughn would Zoom in during the pregame, postgame show once a week or so. And um, <laughs> he's a guy that you have to reel in. So, But he's fun to work with. He's a great guy, great teammate. And the fact that you kind of never know what he's going to say keeps you on the edge of your seat a little bit. And it's going to keep, hopefully, if he comes back uh, at some point, you know, keep the viewers watching Ness and watching the Red Sox broadcast kind of on the edge of their seat, too. That's the main goal, kind of keep people in tune, keep people kind of excited about the games and the broadcasts. I love them. As you said, I mean, it was a, you know, you never knew if you were getting a car crash or not. Yeah. And when, when it turns into a car crash, that's good TV. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. We just don't, we don't want uh, too much of a, a wreck, you know right. what I mean, so to speak, right. as far as a car crash. But, yeah, he's fun. He's fun to work with. And, uh, whew, yeah, yeah, he'd be, he'd be fun to come back. We'll see what happens. And then someone either that uh, has played in the past or is even playing now, someone you think will be really good in the booth. Ah, you know, one of the most insightful baseball players that I, that I know is a guy named Keith Falk. I feel like, I feel like he would be great in the booth just because he's so knowledgeable. He was kind of a blue collar, hardworking guy, knows the ins and outs of the game, all aspects of the game, not just pitching. Uh, Great guy to talk baseball with. And basically when you're, when you're in the booth, that's all you're doing. You're talking baseball. You're kind of saying exactly what he thinks should happen, uh, why something just happened. And, uh, yeah, Keith Falk, that's that's my answer. He, he would do a good job. Love it. Love to see it. Well, Lenny, we appreciate you coming on the show today. Pleasure to have you on, and we uh, we hope you have a great rest of your, uh, your afternoon. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. Take care. Yeah. Thanks, Lenny. Well, there you go. First guest we've had on the show in, in quite some time, honestly. Uh, the, the Gone Bridge, kind of the the rhythm of the show has, has we've been we've been off our game the last last two months or so. I mean, with We're the team, up. it was tough, and then I went through just a changing a changing of my life period. I am now an actual adult. You guys are focusing on senior year of college. I think that there's going to be more consistency coming up soon. And I feel like Gonbridge thrives in the off season. You know, I was going to, I was going to say hot take Gonbridge does its best work in the off season. When you give us nothing, we make a masterpiece. <laughs> and even if the Red Sox are good, like, you know, the Red Sox are good. The, we're good too. You know, there's no better saying than Red Sox are hot. Gonbridge is hot. When the Red Sox aren't giving us a whole lot during their, their games, it's, it's a little tougher, but 
offseason's great. That was a great interview with our guy Lenny. I think certainly in the contention for uh all field guests of the year. Oh, 100 percent 100 percent We got we got actually we're just about a month out. Month out from the given socks, month out from uh the awards show. I mean, like the off season's the best time for the show. Christmas time is the best time of the show. Christmas, uh, I can't wait for the giving socks. That was just such a such a great tradition. Year three coming up. Also, uh, it's been two years of Gone Bridge since we did our last episode. Oh yeah, just yeah, crazy, has. just crazy. Is it today? Is today? No, it was. Oh, the fifteenth. I think it was our the fifth. I think the fifth was fifth? Our first That sounds right. Because it was right after the world. It was like the day after the World Series. Yeah, it was just an awful time to start a podcast. Yeah. But it worked out. It was, yeah, November 5th, 2020. When will Cora be back? Alex Cora is back, episode two. <laughs> I always thought those those first, like, four episodes are the funniest ones to title because it's like, where is Alex Cora? The Red Sox <laughs> sign Alex Cora. Will Heim sign a move? Heim signed a couple guys. <laughs> Please sign someone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Good stuff. You got some art. art episode titles have definitely gotten more creative a little bit better once we were between like 50 and 85 those were our, definitely our best episode titles barbecue cool. benny still yeah. not great. Benny. cool story bro is a good one that yeah. is a good one yeah what else we got in here uh hydrate or die that's yep. <laughs> water finds its level was one i think yep go tigers with the the ux yep. yeah um this this sucks part part 18 <laughs> yeah there's a lot of this sucks this this year when was the last time we did a this sucks uh this sucks part three that was july 17th did we do a this sucks part four this year no we could have we could have i think that it would have fit right into some of those weeks we took off right there and yeah here we are with a great guest like lenny i'm That's sure great. that uh i mean we're probably gonna keep him Keep in our back pocket. Maybe, maybe Gonbridge year three might see Lenny again. Who knows? Definitely. I'd definitely love to do that. Um, we, um, we've got some questions from Matt. So. A consistent, a consistent light on a hazy port is Matt. He's fantastic. We've got two questions today. Uh, first one, what's the worst book you've ever read? Um, in high school, uh, honestly, I reread it recently because um just had nothing better to do pre-employment. Uh, the Samurai's Garden was a book I read in high school, and I actually read it like all the way through just independently um, because it was like an assigned book. And I just would let my English teacher know how much I hated it. And she was like, oh, if you really hate it that much, just like stop doing it and then just like try and try and write the essays like without reading it if you're going to complain all the time and i was like no i'm going to out of spite read this entire book because i think it's bad and you keep saying it's going to get better but it never does so it's probably the worst book i've ever read um i have two the first one i've only heard is the worst book of all time war and peace it's a philosophical book it's like nine thousand pages all about war um i've heard that one sucks and my personal least favorite book of all time uh, was the hunger games I've tried reading it maybe six times. Couldn't get past page 40. Do you know Suzanne Collins is from my town? Really? Yeah. Is that who read or wrote it? Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. No, Does it's just some woman from his, from his hometown. What? She still live there? I think so, yeah. I mean, I feel like people know where I'm from at this point. There's, um, there's definitely hints. There's been hints. There's been so many hints. Like just, there's so many hints. 
Um, my least favorite book. My God, I haven't read a book in so long. I'm not gonna lie. Um, least favorite book of all time. Probably some of the ones we read in high school, like the ones you had to read. Catcher in the Rye, super underrated, oh. awful book. Clausen. I got one. Hold on. I can't remember the name, but I took uh, AP English in high school. Um, what's the Henry David Thoreau one where he lives in the woods? Oh. Uh, My Side of the Mountain? No. All right. Oh, that was a fifth grade book for me. So, uh, Call of the Wild. Walden. Walden. What? That, Wait, I spent that, what'd you say? Summer. What is it called? Walden. I've he never spends a summer uh, like living in the woods at Walden Pond in Massachusetts, and it is the most pretentious, arrogant, and boring book of all time. Because all it is is just like, it's just this big, like, it's really not very long, but it's all about philosophy. But there's every sentence has a slight undertone of, I'm better than you because I'm living in the woods all by myself to better myself. It's awful. (laughs) Were you guys in high school? I assume you read this book. Were you a fan of To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah. I didn't mind. It was okay. I would say the best two high school reads, in my opinion. Great, great Gatsby is a great book. It's a good. Yeah, that's my favorite book of all time. It's a great book. Uh, I also. Do you guys read of Mice and Men? Yeah, Mice and Men's good. That's a good one. Both good. Um, what's it called? Animal Farm. That was a good one. Animal Farm. It's decent. Not my favorite. It's all right. Um, Middle school book is a good high school read. Nineteen eighty four is good. Fahrenheit 451 I liked a lot. That was uh, decent. The Giver, I was a fan. That was a middle school book for me. Another middle school book, The Outsiders, was um, probably top tier book. I don't know if you guys read The Outsiders. I was, uh, did you guys do Percy Jackson? Those are um, not as an assigned book, but I read oh, it in elementary yeah. school, yeah. Uh, and then I'll say that my favorite part in a book uh, that was assigned in high school was in The Crucible when Giles Corey gets stoned to death and he with the rocks on his chest looks up at them and goes more weight and then they kill him unreal like absolutely like alpha move straight savage giles Corey. my uh soft my my sophomore year english teacher she is she has taught at my high school for like probably 40 some odd years she had my dad in high school um she's been there for a very long time and i was not the strongest english student and that was the year we did all the shakespeare books and she'd oh, no. consistently call on me during Macbeth. And I'd be like, I don't know what's going on in this book. I, I can't follow it. And she'd just cold call on me. Old English, man. Oh, man. Beowulf, impossible to read. Impossible. Beth, what else did he write? Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Beowulf, not Shakespeare, but like it's written in like that old English still. It's like impossible to read. I had uh, I had friends that went to uh, like Catholic high school. And before they before they went, like as eighth grade going into freshman year, you had to read the Odyssey and the Iliad. Yeah, no be like, hey, you want to hang out? He's like, no, I got to read sixty pages of the Odyssey today. <laughs> I think I'd uh, I'd rather do basically anything else. Manual labor. <laughs> yeah, um, we got one more question from Matt. Uh, what's your favorite fast food item? That's a good question. That's a good question. I, I mean, I like a good a good uh, Chick Fil A spicy sandwich. Those are pretty solid i don't i don't i don't get it a lot because it's not uh, very close to me but if i'm in the area i'm like huh treat we'll treat um out of left field here i'm gonna go sonic the patty melts there are so good 
nothing messes me up quite like a patty melt especially <laughs> from have. sonic that'll that'll put you down oh my god the one the one time i went to sonic was in i i couldn't even tell this the most remote place in arizona uh like my freshman year of high school we we're going on a road trip and this sonic was literally like on a farm and there were just like horses roaming around it it was the only restaurant within probably 100 miles um it was good it was good but that was the only time i've ever been to one every my two takes on on sonic uh number one every time you go i think it's like a required minimum to eat two thousand calories <laughs> and they are they're always in the most inconvenient places like every one of them is like 40 minutes from anywhere you are i will say that there's a a road uh, in the neighboring town to me that has every single fast food chain within like 2000 yards of each other. It's crazy. There's one road where when I'm driving from my house to my doctor's like office, there is one road. I'm not even going to list it off because no free ads, but I, I like it's, I think there's eight restaurants. Like, yeah. Back to back. Yep. It's like, come on. Um, my favorite fast food rest or uh, item I've kind of been on the chicken, like chicken sandwich wave lately. I kind of gotta like agree with Steve. I'm a I'm a sucker for like a good Chick Fil A sandwich, but if I'm gonna be a little bit different, um, I mean, it, would you say Chipotle is fast food? No. Yeah, borderline. Because yeah. I got a I got a allow it. I got. I, I think you need for fast food. I think you need a drive through. Okay. Um. Then I will say. Oh man, um, I don't know, like some good French fries from a place. Like I like Just French fries from a place. Love them. Love I will them. say I've got a Chipotle bowl waiting for me downstairs Ooh. after this episode. I'm very it. No free ads. No free ads. No. no. no free ads. Um, what was I gonna ask? Uh, yeah, that's all we got for questions with Matt this week. Do you guys have uh? Anything on Xander Endeavors? I know, like, we haven't really had a lot of time all of late to kind of talk about our thoughts on the team and stuff like that. But while we're here, any thoughts on Devers and Bogarts? I think if we pool all of our bank accounts together, we can pay maybe one, if maybe the other, if they're feeling charitable, to play for one more inning. All right, how about this? Everybody in Red Sox Nation, Venmo them $1. Everyone in the city of Boston Venmo's them two bucks. That'll pay for the contract. That'll, yeah. I'm sure that'll just cover like the uh, like legal fees of the contract or something like Hold that. Hold on. Uh, I will say, Boston thought about this. Was, all right. Yeah. This is, we need more than two bucks out of everyone. <laughs> How big is Red Sox Nation? All right. Yeah. No. All right. We would pay them for maybe like. Half of them, like you know, you know how the season kind of starts midway through April. Yeah, I think we could pay them for like the other, like the other half of April. Maybe one of them. We're looking at like one point three million dollars. Uh, I, I, I could, I'd, I'd give them like a hundred bucks to stay for for the next ten years. I take them to, I take them to, uh, to Wahlburgers. Hey. Maybe get them a nice Fenway Frank and clog their arteries I'll up. Buy you, I'll buy you a six-pack and give you a high five if you stick with the team. Maybe we should give them, like, a hot dog and a beer and call it even. It's basically the same Perfect. price. Yeah, uh, Fenway, yeah. Oh, I, what? 
I thought about it a little bit. If we obviously everything everybody's on the same page. I think Lenny mentioned it too. You don't sign Bogarts. You're not signing Devers. You're not signing Devers. You're not signing Devers. I can see in in my darkest dreams and the abyss of my mind, Xander Bogarts getting signed by the Los Angeles Dodgers. And then first day of spring training, um, the Dodgers make an Instagram post of Mookie and Xander, and it's like reunited and it feels so good. That would actually make me throw up. And then I, I can see like Trey Turner going to uh, Seattle and then we just get like Gene Segura at second and move Trevor's story to shortstop and nobody's fucking happy. I can't wait for that all to happen. And then we post this clip. And <laughs> Jonathan it's like, it's like Steve. It's like Steve's suicide note. I called it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> John Bridge episode 106. Timestamp. This Time is stamp why. 103. <laughs> Speaking of boys. Um, I have prepared a little something. Oh no! Oh, yeah. oh no! <laughs> All right. Who's the host? Mute him, Steve. <laughs> uh, no, it's just like every. It's been coming. It's it's been a long time coming. You just, know. I don't, I don't know the outro. I can't give it. You know, this has been coming for a long time. Unanimous Cy Young winners, Sandy Alcantara. And Justin Verlander. And I would like it to be known that on April something, like April 1st, I was made a mockery of my two Cy Young picks, Sandy Alcantara and Justin Verlander. One, Steve Brady laughed in my face. Alex Clausen mocked me. I will not be having that because I had the hottest take and the best take we have seen in the history of Gone Bridge. And... If I had put down a parlay on the two of them winning, 10 bucks would have won me like 3,500 bucks. So that is some crazy odds. But I would like a formal apology whenever. You can write it up whenever. But I, say- I would just, uh, it was an amazing take. And I'm patting myself on the back. It was a real good one. I'm going to look apologize. to see if anybody else got anything right. I'm going to guess no. So. I don't oh. think so. I will say, I'm not going to apologize. I will say, congratulations, Gardner. Hey. You uh you earned the right to, to gloat for sure. And then I'll also throw in that my Cy Young pick, Max Freed, came in second place. He, that, so that was, was a great pick. That pretty good. good. I have correctly picked out of the last three years, three out of the six Cy Young winners. Pretty good. 50%. That's actually really good uh, betting odds, especially for something like the Cy Young, which is like, would have crazy odds on him. Yeah. Did we, you pick we, last year? I didn't pick. Oh, who did I pick? I don't remember last year. I didn't get it. But the or year was before. It, uh, the year before, I was like writing a blog, and I picked Shane Bieber in the AL. I think I picked Shane Bieber this year. It's published some somewhere. I still think the best uh, take of the year was Alex Clausen, Manager of the Year, Joe Girardi, and Charlie Montoya. <laughs> they both. I somehow somehow yeah. found a way to pick the two guys that got fired as my Manager of the Years. And I think that's like I always think that's a bigger win than picking both Cy Youngs. Pretty legitimately the opposite. Um, Clauston, you got the rookie of the year in the AL, right? Did I? Yeah. I can't find this. Down. I can't find this spreadsheet. It's in the There's like six spreadsheets <laughs> in, in our Google Drive. Pretty good. Nope. Yeah, our takes weren't great. Um, I can't find this thing for the life of me. It's a, it's in there somewhere. Trust me. 
Real quick, one other thing. Speaking of reunions, I, I kind of forget that Kike Hernandez and Alex Verdugo were once teammates on the Dodgers. But could we possibly be seeing a all former Dodger outfield for the Red Sox next year? Talking about uh, Cody Bellinger dropped by the Dodgers. I think that would be a great, great signing to bring him in. Cody Bellinger is legitimately Franchi Cordero. They're the same he is, player. He's pretty awful. Rest in peace, Franch, too. Yeah, the franchise. Wonder Worcester, no more. What oh, happened? He got non tendered. What? Yeah, I texted you guys about it. I don't think you did. You did? I 100% did. But yeah, I legit, literally, if you pull, if you have Franchi and Bellinger on the same team and they play 162, they're hitting like the same exact stats. Bellinger is a lot better. I think he needs to change his scenery. He's going to pull like a Joey Gallo and hit like 170 on another team. Yeah. Dude, Bellinger hit, hit 19 bombs last year. How many more games did he play than Franchi? Probably a lot. He played 144. Franchi hit 19 played. bombs. 84 in eight games. How many hit homers did he hit? Three? He hit eight. Eight. See? It's like pretty much the same. Oh, it's a little bit less. It's less. You know, he's on pace for like 14. I I would be perfectly fine with Cody Bellinger. I mean, the former rookie of the year, former MVP. I know he's been awful the last two years, but really the last three years. But I think that says something. Like the, the the potential is in there somewhere. What are you saying, bro? I'm not holding right. my breath over Cody Bellinger. That's for sure. I'm not saying it's gonna be like our big offseason move of the year, but like I could see it. Heim being like, we got former MVP Cody Bellinger, and it's like, what else are you gonna do, Heim? And he's like, nothing. Huh. <laughs> I did see that the Red Sox like are trying to get Bogarts endeavors back, and because of that, they're like not gonna target top free agent pitchers. Which it's fun. I'd rather have Bogart's endeavors back, but you gotta, you know, whatever. I want Carlos Rodon. I want Carlos Rodon. I like Rodon too. I saw that we're showing interest in Corey Kluber once again. It's a yearly tradition. Corey Kluber, thousand years old. Corey Kluber. I remember like one of our first episodes, us talking about how bad we wanted Corey Kluber. Well, two two times Cy Young, right? So come on. That is true. More two two more Cy Youngs than Chris Sale. That's true. That's true. Um, we got to close out the nine thoughts. Beware of buttons. Beware of claws. Nah, you got me. You got me a lot. I, also, I, I, I uh, was. I a lot of people got me a lot. We the UNH is in the in the FCS football playoffs again. First time since twenty seventeen. There's no James Madison. There's no like it, it's not David versus Goliath anymore. Dude, we could see the one seed is South Dakota State and the three seed is North Dakota State. Huge year for Dakota. The I'm, battle of the border. <laughs> I love uh UNH has got Fordham first round, and then if they win, they play Holy Cross. Are they home for that? They are. When's that? It's the Sunday of Thanksgiving, so unless you want to come Sunday of Thanksgiving? Or after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving weekend, bro? Yeah. That's brutal. I know. I hope they win, because word on the street is if they win, would they get another home game? No, they'll be on the road. Ah, rats. 
Darn. But they'd be in Worcester. We could go down to Worcester. We could go down to Worcester. Worcester, kid. Worcester. Um, closing out the nine thoughts. I'm excited for the World Cup, except for the fact that it's in th- that stupid country, Qatar. Qatar? Is it called Qatar? I think it's Qatar. Ah, uh, whatever. They don't. I don't know. Why do I hate it, Steve? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Um, what's it called? Uh, yeah, World Cup 2026, States, Mexico, Canada. That's gonna be pretty cool. Playing games at Gillette. Um, but that'll oh, do. Wait, it. That's wait. all we got. Are you talking about? Wait, who's playing at Gillette? Uh, World Cup 2026 at Gillette Stadium. Well, that's one of the venues. Yeah, there's like 15 of them. Weird. Yeah. Huh. What city is hosting? Foxborough. Sick. <laughs> Can you imagine like the FIFA committee sitting around and they're like, all right, we've come to a conclusion. Foxborough, Massachusetts. <laughs> Here's the venues. Everyone's uh, staying in a Marriott. <laughs> going to Planet Fitness. They've got uh, one in Mexico City, MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, AT&T in Dallas, Arrowhead Stadium, Kansas City. NRG in Houston, SoFi in LA, Mercedes-Benz in Atlanta, Lincoln Financial, Philly. Uh, what else? They got the one in Seattle where the, the Seahawks play, Patriots, 49ers, Dolphins, the stadium in Vancouver, two more in Mexico, and then Toronto. So Cool. Crash to death, bro. Those tickets are going to be expensive. Yeah. Anyways. Hope you enjoyed the episode with another guest on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Gombridge Podcast and Twitter at Gombridge. Don't forget to subscribe to our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Stitcher. And we will be back. We're going to be back next week. Making it a point. We're going to be back next week with episode. What even episode is this? 107. 107. See ya.